Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. I'm sitting here with my two lovely co-hosts, Dominique Simone Levine. Dominique, how are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. And Kayla Solomon. Good morning, Kayla. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Dominique. Good to be here. Today's topic is going to be on being non-confrontational, which in craft, through communication skills, we talk about being non-confrontational. And then how is that different from not addressing the elephant in the room? So what I find is a lot of family members think that this non-confrontational type approach means you don't talk about the difficult things that are going on within the household, or you you just kind of tiptoe around the elephant and you just leave the elephant in the room and nobody says anything. And that is not it. That is not what craft is necessarily about. Well, that's not what non-confrontational necessarily means in our case. Maybe we should start with what we mean by when we say confrontational. So people are, are clear about us. And so I have my own particular viewpoints on this. To me, anytime you're directly questioning the actual use, how much did you use? I know you're high. You know, I, I know you're in the room drinking. How much are you drinking? Where did you go last night? I know you're, it's, sometimes it's questions, but it's very leading, very specific questions that, you know, when you ask them, there's a presumption that the person's going to come back and tell you the truth, which I think is insane. Because as soon as you say to somebody, are you drinking? Have you been drinking? Are you using, are you using crystal meth? The one response that you could be guaranteed to get is defensiveness. Yeah, no. You know, I talk to family members and, I, and I'll tell them, how easy would it be for you if your loved one asked you, if your parents asked you or your spouse said, are you shooting up heroin? What would you say? Immediately, you would say no. So, yes, I totally agree with you, Kayla, that that's what we're talking about. And to me, what we're talking about is no negative talk on the Allies and Recovery website. We are talking about the very first video in the communication module of no negative talk. So in other words, I can still approach these difficult conversations. I'm still going to have them. I'm just not going to be accusatory. I'm not going to blame. I'm not going to be grilling the person, you know, interrogating what's going on. I'm not going to be negative. I'm still going to be willing to go ahead and approach that particular difficult conversation but I'm going to approach it in a different way, more in an invitational way, more in a collaborative way. So that to me is like a bit of a difference between being confrontational, but still addressing the elephant. And I would point out that the timing here is very important, right? You certainly do not want to be talking about these important topics 
if the person is is high. And at that point, the communication skills training we do are very clear. You want to avoid the conversations, practically any conversation with the person when they're high. And certainly being confrontational will land you in hot water. It will simply push them up against the wall and make them feel as though they either have to defend or deny the accusation that you're making. And the fact that they're high makes them a little erratic and you're more likely to end up in conflict. And so part of it is clearly not communicating in any way, a small amount of assertiveness to get yourself out of there, but not trying to hold conversations when they're high. The the one thing that I'm going to add to this is I believe that all discussions need to be about the behavior that you're witnessing and not about what you think is causing the behavior. Okay. Because once you start having your interpretations of how people are acting. And by the way, this is just a general rule for all communication. Anytime you add your interpretation in, well, you must be high because you're acting this way or you must be doing this. Anytime you say that to anybody, like even, you know, oh, you seem angry, that makes people angry. You cannot assume that you know what's going on, but you can talk about what you see. So to go back to your example, You could say, you know, I noticed you're spending a lot of time in your room. Are you okay? You know, that's different than saying you must be going in there to get high. But you do get to say what you're noticing, what you're noticing in terms of behavior or what you're observing. I'm hoping listeners will get that there's two different approaches, right? So one would be, I know you're in there drinking. You know, I know I went in there the other day and I saw all your bottles. I found them in your closet, which is very blaming, very shaming, very intrusive. I went in your closet and I looked and I found that, or I just happened to be in there, which we all know why you're in there, you know, that kind of thing. That's confrontational versus, hey, you know, I'm concerned you're spending a lot of time in the bedroom. Can we talk about what's going on? Is there something you want to discuss or, you know, that is more invitational, right? It's more collaborative, right? It's more, I'm observing this particular behavior and I'm concerned. Let me ask you this, um, because I've heard this actually recently from no less than about five family members that keep telling me their loved one is drinking and hiding it and they're petrified to bring attention to it, or they're either petrified of the blow up that's going to happen when they do say something and they don't know how to get in there and talk to their loved one about it. What would you suggest? In the example that you gave of finding bottles in the closet, that happens a lot. Families, they hunt, they look, they're looking for evidence and I don't blame them. And I actually suggest, I know some of us disagree with this, but This is war, not everything is fair. And if you need to make yourself clearer about whether or not they're using, you go looking in the closet and you find bottles, that's information for you. It's not not something you're gonna use against them. It's not something you're even gonna say right as you see them again. You're gonna hold back that information. You're gonna leave the bottles and 
if and when you sit down and have that conversation, an open conversation, hey, it seems like something's changed. Can we sit down and talk about it? You might need to say, look, I happen to be looking in your closet. I'm really sorry, but there's over 30 empty bottles in there or whatever, you know, and and that could be the evidence. But it's used in an intervention in this small, informal, loving way that we describe in our module eight on the Allies in Recovery site, which has this huge rate of success because it's done in this very loving, quiet way. But the evidence of the bottles You just want to hold on to that. What it is for you as the family member is information that, yes, my hunch is right. My gut is right. She is using. I have to be on the lookout for this. I have to tighten up my observations so that I'm reacting and responding clearer when she comes home. And most of me is thinking, yeah, I think she's been using. And I know that the bottles are accumulating in the closet. So she is using. And so it just makes me more sure about how to respond, right? Which is you're going to allow natural consequences. You're going to remove yourself. I agree with you in a lot of it's in my house and it's really dangerous. And so safety is the most important piece here. So if your loved one is drinking to extremes right now, you really got to take safety into account. And I often felt that I let my loved one know early on when they were living with me or coming back to live with me that I wasn't all into the whole privacy thing. That if you're in my house, that if I suspect something, I might go looking. And if my loved one can't live with that, well, then I'm just kind of forewarning you ahead of time that that's the position that I am in. And not for nothing, I have to do it for myself. It's a boundary that I have to, I just have to do for myself because I cannot, I do not want anybody in my house placed in a really dangerous, unsafe position. So I'm going to do that. Just kind of forewarning you and letting you know, I'm not going to go to great lengths to do it. I might do it if maybe I'm sensing that something's off. Um, But I made sure, and I made it clear. I, I actually made it very clear to my children when they were very young Hey, don't write a diary. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you do, you better keep it really well hidden because I might read it. Also, I feel like if I get confronted with that, I'm not afraid. Like, I'm going to be open and honest. Yep. I was in your closet. Yep. And I know that's one of my faults. I have my own anxiety. And sometimes I've got to relieve my anxiety with that. And I'm sorry. That's just who I am. Lori, I think that that's a really good point because I feel like part of what happens when we're dealing with addiction and people who are using substances is everything becomes about them. You invaded my space. How could you do this to me? What are you saying? And I feel like the change in orientation that we're talking about with craft is that you get to be a respected part of the equation. Because it's kind of like this victim mode that they put out, like, well, I'm an addict. You can't kick me out. You're going to make me homeless or I'm going to be killed or whatever. But there's no moment in time where it's like, how about you, mom? How about you, dad? How about you, partner? It's always about them. And I feel like by us working on ourselves first, that we have valid 
needs and desires and need to function in a particular way and don't want our lives destroyed because the other person is destroying their own life. As you bring it up, as you say, it's about me. I'm having a really hard time because I'm wondering whether you're using, whether you're not using, are you in danger? And this is really stressing me out. And we need to come up with a plan so that I could do that. I could have you here because if not, it's this is intolerable for me. So you, we need to work together as a team to figure out how this is going to work for both of us. And, you know, I, I tell the story all the time that when I was working in the clinic, I was one of the few addiction specialists in the clinic and they were like, okay, you're going to be fee for service. And that means that if your clients don't come in, you don't get paid. And I freaked out because I was like, oh my God, I, I'm working with addicts. I'm never going to eat again. And so I actually started, I would meet with every single person that was there for addiction. I would say, look, I just want you to know that I don't get paid if you don't show up. And that does not work for me. And and people like, you're a therapist. You're supposed to be understanding. I'm like, listen, I'm a therapist second to being a human being that has needs. And so my human self needs to be paid when I go to work. And if I have you down for a session and you don't show up, I don't get paid. And that does not bode well for our relationship because it makes me feel disrespected. It makes me feel like you don't value this. And that is not how I want to work with you. So you need to value me as part of this process. And it was like revolutionary. Like the people I were talking to me like, and it's almost like nobody had ever said, what about me? Your behavior actually affects me. And I felt like that was the beginning of the treatment that you're not the only person in the room. You're not the only person that has needs that I get to have needs also. And that's the beginning of the shift. And what you've just done there is provide a natural, natural consequence. You've explained that when they don't do something or they do something that's that isn't kind to you, it has a consequence for them. I just had this very quick interaction the other day with a contractor who had come around the day before to check out some work and I could smell the alcohol on him and he had come over uninvited and it just was not a good scene, right? So I decided that I would do something the next time that happened and and sure enough, two days later, he did the same thing. He came over and rather than stay quiet and non-confrontational or kind of worried about anything being said about the alcohol. I I had thought of a way of saying what I wanted to say, which was, you know, I'm 28 years in recovery from alcohol and I can't have the smell in my house. And and I'm sorry, you smell. I can tell you've been drinking, which I would prefer if you not drink before coming over. And he said to me, he said, wow, you have a sensitive nose because I've only had one. And I said, oh, okay. And I just dropped it. It's like one, are you kidding? That was like a distillery that walked into my house. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it'll work, but it shamed him a little bit. It embarrassed him a little bit. It cleared up my boundary. He's less likely to come over that way again. He's less likely to drive drunk to my house again. And that is for me, that's the kind of thoughtful, work that is craft, you know, and I did script it. I did think about it beforehand and it did come out just about the way I had hoped it would. And so basically, I think what we're saying here is confrontation 
isn't the way to go about doing it. So in other words, when we get confrontational, just like what you spoke about earlier, people go on the defensive, right? People, when when we get accusatory and start to blame and, and do all of that, and we get confrontational, people get defensive. They either defend themselves or tell you you're crazy and start with the gaslighting and right. And then we feel we're crazy, we're wrong. So we also don't want you to go completely on the other end of the spectrum and avoid it and not do anything about it. Because that can be just as harmful and just as deadly. And I'm, I'm going to say this, can be just as deadly as if you're confrontational. Let's talk about, you know, heroin. And we're all petrified, our loved ones, we're going to do something and our loved one is going to go out and use. And I mean, let's face it, death is on the table. We're scared to death of that. So basically, we're saying we don't want to get confrontational because we're worried. We as family members are often worried that the loved one is going to go out and do something and use and we're going to end up with the worst possible results. What we often don't do as family members is recognize that actually the opposite end of it also could result in the same type of a situation because we're not facing it. We're not addressing it. We're kind of just dancing around it and letting it happen and becoming, I call it a doormat, you know, becoming a doormat and not doing anything about it. That is not craft. And it also could result in something very dangerous and very difficult to deal with. Instead, yeah, what we're trying to do is balance it out and pull it into the middle a little bit. We are going to address it. We're going to address it in a positive way, but we're going to lay down some boundaries based on our own safety and our own needs. So basically, I think what we're saying is that there's a couple of good tools to use for this. Okay, number one is... If you can start with all of the tools, you start by calming your system down. You start by getting space. You start by thinking about what you're going to say before you say it. So you're not in reactivity. You're not just blurting something out because it will never come out right if you do it in the moment of being disturbed. So that is number one. If you're disturbed, keep your mouth shut, put the tape on your mouth, back up leave the room, do what you have to do to get away, because that is number one, the worst time you could do it. If you think about most times when we confront somebody, it's because we're upset and we just speak and then we have to repair the damage, not craft. Okay, that's a not craft move. So what happens is you step back and you actually do what Dominique is talking about, where you think about it. What's the most effective way to do it? And if you notice what Dominique did is she did she used two of the tools that we're talking about. Number one is she revert referred to herself and made it about her, which is a huge piece of it. Number two is she described what she noticed. You know, it's it's interesting because if you think about your senses, it's like she smelled something or you saw something or you heard something. So what you're doing is you're making this very specific observation about what you noticed somehow, some way. But you're doing it in this extremely neutral way. It's not with judgment. It's not harsh. It's not attacking. It's not assuming that you're right. It's just the, the most obvious thing, I smelled something. And he could say, well, I didn't do anything. He could say, I didn't smell a thing. He could say, well, I just want you to know that's what I'm picking up on. And so there's something that's making me uncomfortable with the smell. So just know that. So you could keep 
negotiating it without being like, oh, I know you're drinking. Come on. What do you think? I'm an idiot. That's not the point. It's like, well, I, I'm pretty sure I smelled something. So I'm not quite sure what's going on. But that smell, you need to know it's disturbing to me. So you know what that smell is from. I don't. But that smell bothers me. And so what happens is you're going around it by discussing what you're noticing. Okay, not your interpretation. I know you drank more than one because let's face it, for you to smell that badly, it's it's in your system and it's in your blood. No, no, no. The point is that you had this gentle little, oh, I just noticed that. The third tool in this case is less is more. You make the statement and then you're done. You don't drill it in. You don't make sure they heard you. You don't push them. You don't like poke at them until they confess. None of the above. You just point out that you notice what they're saying. And that itself is the tool because that means they then leave and have to think about it, which is the process that we're trying to start is, okay, somebody saw this, somebody noticed this. Okay. And what you're doing is you're creating a little bit of discomfort or disequilibrium, and that starts to shift things. And just the, the last little bit of that, Kayla, is I also... I was conscious of wanting to protect my my boundary, my perimeter, my safe zone. And, and I wanted to tell him that he had crossed over into my safe zone with this behavior that I did not want. And I just I'm not saying don't drink. I'm just saying get it out of my perimeter. This is my boundary. Yes. And that's the making it about you piece of it. That's what works. Not about them. I'm afraid for your life. I'm afraid you're going to die. You know, I'm gonna, whatever. It's like, for me, it's like, I'm afraid you're going to put the nail in the wrong place. Yeah, but you're not going to say that. <laughs> I think that's a really important piece of it because that is the short and specific piece when we're talking about communication on the website in module four, because there's this whole in, in pious S stands for short and specific. I think that's what you're talking about, Kayla, when you say that be short, be specific and no more, no more, be short, <laughs> no more. Because when you start to go on and get and get involved, then what you're doing is you're actually inviting in the opportunity for your loved one to do other things like like lie to you or try and make up reasons why or right. And you want to avoid all that. No, I'm not. I'm you don't need to give me an explanation. It is not my business. It is your business. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. And I'm just telling you how it's making me feel. And so I'm going to get out of here now. I've done that. Now you go figure out all the rest. This is a really important point, um, Lori, because I feel like for those of you who know who Charlie Brown's teacher is, what Charlie Brown heard the teacher sound like is wah, 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 wah. And I feel like after one sentence, then you become Charlie Brown's teacher and people tune you out. And it's so easy to tune out somebody who goes on and on and on and on and on. Actually, my daughter taught me this because apparently I speak clearly enough that the first line she gets and then I'm like, I got to make sure you get it. So I'm going to say it 500 different ways. And she's like, I heard you. I heard you. So I'm like, all right, how do I do the one line and then leave and make her more likely to come back and talk to me about it, as opposed to everybody's waiting for me to get the hell out of there and shut up so they could leave. 
And I also think it's really important for family members to understand what's going to happen after they've done this. Um, and I think Dominique's example is actually a really good example because immediately he tried to pull her in. Oh, your nose, your nose is so good. You know, he immediately tried to draw her back into that conversation and was probably trying to send messages that he was a little incensed that she had the guts to say this to him. And I think it's important that family members understand that your reaction from your loved one, especially the first couple of times you do this, is not going to be nice. It's not going to be a pretty little picture. So again, it's not about avoiding the difficult conversation. It's not about being confrontational. It's about getting in there, having the conversation in a more positive way and doing all of the skills that you've learned from craft. Yeah, because I because I feel like a lot of times we do this and there's we have a goal in mind. Oh, they're going to confess. They're going to stop the behavior. They're going to get better. They're going to then now spend 20 minutes telling us how right we are. And thank God we t- found this and that they're going to change and they're going to do all this. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. The only goal that we have in these moments is to speak our truth in a positive, calm and thoughtful way. That's what this is. That's the goal. If you did that, you succeeded. Because I will tell you, as somebody who's been doing the group for more than two years now, there are now success stories, which is really amazing because we are witnessing people take the skills, put them into action. And I cannot say this enough times. This is a very slow process. Okay. But what's remarkable is it works. It really works, but it's not about having these immediate goals that you're going to do this and then this is going to happen. What you're doing is you're changing the dynamic, which takes time. And if you stay on the course and keep using the tools and the skills that we're we're working on with craft, it actually does have positive changes, but you have to be patient and you cannot expect an immediate response. And the other point, I think, from sort of a larger context is that if we aren't confrontational, but also are not assertive and trying to say these truthful, short things that we're, we're going to perform perfect, perfectly in front of them in a calm way. We are essentially normalizing the situation at home, which is that there is use and we're neither confronting it nor saying anything about it instead walking around. And I was having this talk with my two girlfriends about this contractor and what had happened. And both of them said, well, it's his responsibility. I don't have, I can't be responsible for his drinking. And I thought, you know what, if we don't start as a community and as a society and as a family, helping one another out of this by being assertive and doing something. And in the case that I came up with, which was giving him a little bit of a natural consequence, creating a natural consequence for him, right? I could have ignored his use. I could have, job would be done and he would be gone and I wouldn't hire him again. But instead, and I had to argue with my girlfriends who said, you know, it's his problems, not mine. And I, I I don't owe him anything. It's not my responsibility if he drinks. It's his responsibility to, you know, essentially hit bottom and, and decide he's gonna stop. And I'm going, well, it's my responsibility as a, You know, I say this with all love, a brother or a sister, 
who is struggling with addiction in front of me in my home, and I have an opportunity to just drop a little tiny seed, I'm going to do it. And I'm not normalize what he wants me to normalize in our relationship. But also, we never know what where that seed is going to lead. Because, you know, my, one of my, my story of when I got clean is somebody, this acquaintance came up to me at a party and said, you know, Kayla, we think that you would be just as entertaining and funny if you weren't using drugs. And I was like, people notice I'm using drugs. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, I was so shocked. And that was the beginning of me even considering stopping. And this woman, I know, I don't know what, what her thought was, but she, I don't even remember who she is, but she was the beginning of my consideration of stopping. Thinking about it. Yep. And it was not long after that I stopped, but like, I was like, oh my God, if I'm smoking that much that people notice it and that people see it and actually can comment on it, it must be much worse than I think it is and much more obvious. And that was enough for me to, you know, it, that won't necessarily change anybody else. But for me, that was the beginning of something. And so what Dominique, you're saying is you never know what neutral kind statement you can make that could get somebody thinking in a different way. And I've done it enough with my nieces and nephews that I know this works. It doesn't, you know, this may be a slow process. This may be not the easiest thing you've ever heard of in terms of what to do with your loved one who's struggling with addiction. Cause we're asking you as the family member, as the intimate partner, as the friend, as the boss to roll up your sleeves and learn some skills, but you're doing everyone a huge, it's a huge benefit for people that receive what you're learning. This is actually, I think, a really great conversation to have. And I'm and I'm glad we had it because I really do think a lot of family members out there struggle with this particular piece of it, really do not understand when we say, when we talk about being non-confrontational, we're talking about one end of the spectrum, meaning, you know, we don't want that very demanding judgmental, blaming, you know, pointing the finger, accusatory, that that's what we mean by confrontational. But we also do not mean by being non-confrontational, tiptoeing around and just ignoring it, because that's just as dangerous as the opposite. Both ends of the spectrum are not good. You want to kind of come towards the middle. But Kayla, I'm thinking uh, maybe you need to give us a quick summary of what we talked about. I'll do my quick summary, which is that when we talk about um, communicating when you see problematic behavior, what we're talking about is doing it in a very, very intentional way. So that intention means you're observing a behavior and you're pointing out that particular behavior. You're calming your system down. So you're doing it in a very, very calm way. And you're being thoughtful about it. You're taking your time and you're not necessarily doing it at a moment when you're very agitated. So it's all about stepping back, thinking, processing, pointing something out and making it very brief and specific, putting yourself in the equation, which is this is the impact on me, but again, very peacefully and not with great agitation. And, and then just stepping away and allowing the person the dignity of processing that piece of material that you gave and not having any expectation of the particular outcome. It's just you, you've done your part. 
and that you get to feel proud of your part. And then over time, that will begin to change things. That's the craft way is that's a a modification of how you're going to interact, which will have long term results. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you. Thank you, ladies. Um, One thing I just want to remind our listeners of is we have a 10 day challenge on the Allies in Recovery website. So if new members get onto the website, actually old members can do can do so as well. But if you watch half of the video modules, do half of the activities that come with the video modules, you get a $250 one-day training, a five-hour training for free. So if you're listening, check it out. See if it's for you. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.